0: This is Father Patrick Pajkowskis broadcasting from St. Dominic Priory in St. Louis, Missouri. If you didn't know, I was away a little bit. These uh, next few interviews were recorded before I took off for Kenya. I went to Africa for my first time. It was a gift from parishioners back in West Lafayette, and what an extraordinary time I had. And I will be talking about that probably after I conclude these uh, series of interviews with author Gary Schmidt. We're going to pick up today with uh, part two of these conversations with author Gary Schmidt. I hope you're in enjoying him half, half as much as I enjoyed being able to talk with him. I got this lovely note from Gary on my return, saying he felt like it was uh, a conversation with a, a, a someone that I've known for a while, and we've been going. Went on a little walk, which I thought was a lovely way to to put it. And I um, will uh, begin, of course, as we always do with a prayer. As many of you know, I have a fairly long history with uh, the people of Haiti, and certainly they've had yet another tragedy there this week, and so let's begin with a prayer for them. O oh, gracious Creator, God of all goodness and love, we lift up our Haitian brothers and sisters to you in prayer. Our hearts go out to all those who suffer in so many different ways there, certainly a big part want, Grant them, Lord, your strength and your wisdom and your hope in the face of all that is occurring there in that beautiful, beautiful place with those extraordinary people. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Gary, there's um, a character in, I think it's in um, Pay Attention Carter Jones. Is that the the book with the the, uh, butler?
1: That, right, that's one with the butler.
0: Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that, that's very different, it seemed to me, from, from some of the other things. How did you come up with that idea?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, ideas come in so many different ways, right? Sometimes they come because you've got the narrator set, and sometimes they come because there's a line or something or because you know what the what the plot line may be. You can't be sure at the beginning, but you have a sense of who it might be. Um, with that book, it was really very different. Um, there were a couple of things that had come together. One was, I just had this image of, of a very formal Butler, the bowler, the vest, that kind of stuff, standing on the stoop of a, um, of a kid who's going the first day of sixth grade and, and it's raining. And so of course, you know, in any family, the first day of school is always, crazy, right? I mean, there are all the new routines to be established and everyone's excited and kind of fearful and eager at the same time, all the mixed emotions of it. Um, Parents are going a little bit, trying to figure out how the routines are going to go. So it's just an intense time. And suddenly on the stoop now is this guy, this, this, uh, this very formal butler, which who couldn't be more, you know, discordant than that. I mean, there's just no reason for him to be there. And then they answer the door and he knows their names. Uh, And it seemed to me as soon as I saw that, that this is um, like created a lot of possibilities because I had no idea. I wish I could tell you this was all planned out, but it isn't. I had no idea what he was doing there. I had no idea how he knew them. I had no idea how the plot was going to develop. I just had that that one image. Um, And I also knew that I wanted to talk about um, loss because um, in this, this family, um, the father has, has betrayed, um, has gone to another tour of duty and there he has another family in Germany. And so he will leave them and divorce the mother. And, and they're angry um, about that and hurt by that. I knew that, that, that wanted, I wanted that to be part of the story. So those two things are sort of like the, the key that turn on the engine of the story. And then as a writer, it's, it's briefed, hanging on. Like, what happens next? What happens next? What's the next page? What's the next thing that happens? So E.M. Foster gave these lectures in the 1920s about a writer's duties. And he, he said, you know, what a writer's job is, is not all that cosmic. What a writer's job is just to get the reader to turn the page. That's what a writer does. And the writer does that by making the readers say, wow, I wonder what happens next. That's why we turn pages.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So that's in a way how I write. I just think, okay, what happens next is going to get, particularly a child reader, a young reader, who has no obligation to read this book, right? Like an adult who's going to really carefully read a book that, that he's heard about or she's heard about, it, about because it's important in the culture or whatever. And even if you don't like it that much, you're going to go through it. A kid's not going to do that. You know, There's no way. So I have to figure out what's going to drive the the reader to turn that next page. And that's sort of what I did for, you know, page after page, what, what is happening here. And then you, by, after a while, you've, you've figured out, okay, this book is about whatever. And then I can go back on knowing that. uh, So I can get rid of everything that doesn't contribute to that. But that was that, that's one of the few times I've just had an image in that book, that, that Butler standing on the, on the porch, in the rain, with a huge umbrella, on the craziest day of the year as these kids are trying to get ready for school. And I wanted to see what happens next, what goes on next. It was fun, that was a fun book to work on.
0: Wow, uh, you, you, you said something, I know you teach writing too, and I wanna get into that a little bit, but so did you say, did you, say you, don't, you don't really know where you're gonna go when you, when you start the book?
1: Oh, yeah. No, that's true for all the books. I have no idea. And I used to feel really badly bad because there are there are writers who do know that who are super planned out. Um, and I know writers who will plan out um, the whole arc of the story that will outline each of the chapters before they'll start. And they'll have a really, really good sense of how this works. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just not me. I, it just isn't how I do it. It's It's much more Let me discover as I go along and then I can go back and fix things. And it's, I guess it's really inefficient if if I think of it that way. (laughs) Um, But it's 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 one way of sort of being in the position of the reader. I mean, Uh as, as the reader is at a given page and has no idea what happens next, so too am I. And what that means is that we're in the same place and I can sort of figure out what the reader might be thinking. And I really kind of like that. And I also like surprises. I like to sit down. I mean, you know, there's not exactly a huge, huge level of excitement to sit down in your study by yourself and mm-hmm. sit there for a few hours and work at your typewriter. It's um, So there have to be some pleasures, right? Yeah. And it seems like to be surprised by a turn in the plot or by something that a character says suddenly, um, that's that's kind of a pleasure. And it lets me follow a certain line. And sometimes the lines are wrong. And I know that, Like. So I'll follow this long narrative line, and it will be completely wrong. And I have to just throw it all out and start somewhere else again. But that's okay.
0: Well, that's um, I, I. I guess it just sort of stuns me that you're 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 able to uh, write that way and do it in such a way that you're right. I mean, it becomes a page turner um, as you. Uh, uh, are, are in, start to get involved in it. I mean, that's my, at least my expe- experience with it. It was like, you know, okay for now. Um, this is the one about the boy that becomes an artist, right? Right. The, he's painting the. Oh, you know, and that was a very interesting. Um, I, I shouldn't be talking. Guess, because no, nobody so. else knows what we're talking about. But so there's this story about this young man who's he's kind of lost, right? I mean, he,
1: yeah.
0: His his. Um, He's got to move to a, a, a small town, as I as I recall, and doesn't yeah. know anybody, and and uh, meets this 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 man that kind of stands in for his father, I, I, yeah, and and uh, and and, and uh, develops these real you know this extraordinary talent. That I guess he didn't really see in himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that start?
1: Yeah, that was in Flint, Michigan, um, and. As soon as I say that name, I'm sure that some of your listeners will yeah. remember this. Flint is the town that right. badly did change the source of water and it's the not using certain chemicals in the water. It corroded the interior of the lead pipes. And so suddenly all the water was carrying lead and it became and still is in many places mm-hmm. in Flint um, undrinkable and really, really dangerous. And there was this, I mean, just terrible, terrible water disaster. So I went to Flint, which for a while was America's most violent city once the auto industry collapsed there. And there's this stunning library, just amazing. Um, And they don't have many resources, but they have dedication and imagination and they are able to put on in a struggling city these incredible gigs. So I was there for that, for a a gig, and they bring students in. And so between those events, I'm just wandering around the the library, and there's a table, a display table, um, sort of off to the side. And I go and look at it, and it is Audubon's Birds of America. It's not a first edition. It's an 1861 edition that his wife put out after his death, but it's a really, really lovely book and probably worth maybe half Mm -hmm. a million dollars. And I remember going over to one of the librarians and saying, you know, I know you guys are struggling with budget and such, but this is a half million dollar book. You could sell this. And um, they looked at me and they go, you know, we know how valuable it is, but we're going to keep it because we want to be we want it to be here when Flint comes back. We want this book to be here. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I wish that you guys were my congressman. I mean, it was it's exactly the attitude that you want right, in, in Congress and in the government, that everything is for the people. And I just loved it. And I um, so I went away from that um, experience, I'm just so moved by this library and by these wonderful librarians. And I thought about what would it be like to have a first edition of Audubon, um, where all the pages, just a single page is worth 300000 400000 And there's 435 pages. Um, what would that be like if suddenly a town started to take the pages one by one and to sell them for good reasons? It's not like they're being, you know, yeah. a little yeah. malevolent, but they're trying they need to raise some money. And this is a way to raise it. And then a kid decides I'm going to get them all back. And so this is a kid who wants one perfect thing in his life, um, especially after he loses Joe Peppertone's jacket. Just one stupid, perfect, per- perfect thing. And so when he sees that there are nine plates that have been sold off, he resolves to get these plates back. Even though there's no way, you know, he has no resources to do it. So how is he going to do it? And that was the narrative problem. Um, that was that way that book started, to have the narrative problem of a kiddo who wants to get all nine plates back, even though worth way more than he could possibly imagine. How is he going to do it? And so that's that's the way the novel started, and um, how the how the novel progresses.
0: It's a well, i tell you, it's a great. It's a great. I I don't know if it's fair to ask an author. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, Lizzie Bright in the Buckminster Board. But before sure. we get there, do you have a favorite? Is it is that like saying do you have a favorite child? Um, <laughs>
1: You know, you know, the standard I've been told that the standard answer to that question is well, the one that I'm working on right now. Yeah. And, then, yeah, and there is that's kind of there's some truth to that. It's not just a, a stupid answer, there is some truth that your heart is so powerfully in, in the book that you're working right now. So, that even when you know, let's say you've written a book and it's about to come out, and you're six, eight, nine months already in the next book. When that book comes out, it's cool. I mean, you open the package, you send one to Anne Helen, you know, that sort of stuff. It's cool. Yeah. But still, you're really more excited about the book you're writing.
0: Yeah,
1: I, I think the one that if I had, um, if all else was to disappear, I think I, the one that I really, really think is um, a favorite, at least, is a book called Mara's Stories. And I wrote it early on. Today I look at it, and I wish I had waited, because I think I could do it better now, but you don't get to do that. Um, But it's a collection of stories, some of which I heard um, as a kid um, from the Holocaust. And they're not the witness stories. They're not like the Anne Frank stories. Um, But they were stories that were told as folktales inside the barracks of the Holocaust. Uh And I remember, oh, my goodness, I remember hearing these stories. Um, Most of my friends were Jewish. It was a very um, Jewish community that I lived in. And I remember hearing those stories coming out in the mid-60s. And the irony of having even some jokes that were told in the barracks um, during the Holocaust, that they were funny Holocaust stories, if you can imagine it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but they were they were incredibly powerful. And I and I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe I should try and do this, even though I'm not Jewish. I think maybe I, I love these stories and maybe others would too. And so I um, wrote down the ones I remembered hearing, and I collected a few more, and I got about twenty of those stories. Um, and that book—it just feels to me important that they were, um, yeah. that they don't disappear.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm gonna look for it. I I I I have not read that. Yeah,
1: yeah it was a different publisher than my normal one, um, and it was this lovely small book that they that they put out. It was just really really perfect. Mm. Um, at the end of the writing, I was a little nervous about you know Schmidt, right? Writing a book about Holocaust yeah. stories um, since I'm not Jewish. And so I just got nervous about whether I should be the one to do that. And so I had met Elie Wiesel um, at, a, at, at a conference at, at my school. Uh-huh. And so I sent him the manuscript and said, you know, what do you think? And I thought he would never write back. I mean, he must get a yeah. thousand letters a day. Yeah. But he wrote back this lovely letter. Um, well, said, I yes, send these stories out. Send them out right away.
0: Yeah.
1: Nice. And uh, that was what let me do it. And so I did. And they were um, taken by the first letter. And it was, I am I just love the book. And wow. I'm glad that I did yeah. it. Yeah.
0: Well, now especially, I will get it. You know, I, apropos of your remarks, you know, Mer- I was talking to Lee yesterday about my. She's the one that recommended you to begin with. And she was asking me what my favorite book is. And I mean this. Uh, <clears throat> Gary, I said, you know what? Every time I've read one of Gary's books, that becomes my favorite. Oh, okay. Uh, so, the, and, I, and, I, and I mean it. I mean, I just, I just, I, I've liked them all. And the last one I've, the most recent one I've written, and not the last one I've written, but I mean, read, the last one I read was Lizzie Brighton, The Buckminster Boy. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that I think is it the only one that's based on the historical uh, 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 facts,
1: right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's based on a true story. Um, although that story has changed now, um, Patrick, oddly enough, it's, um, it was a story of, of it was a real community on Malaga Island. It's an, and it's just offshore, um, from Harpswell in Maine. And by just offshore, I I mean, I think you could probably almost throw a stone from the, from the mainland onto it. It's a small island, 40 acres, it's really kind of separated because it's a tidal river, so it's not like you can swim over. It's um, it's a strong, strong current. And back in the 1910s, 1912, around um, when the economy of Maine completely changed from shipbuilding to tourism, um, and that gap between those between those two tourists uh, between those two industries, um, they just there was a, a small island, mostly Irish American and African American. Mm-hmm about 120 people, something like that, and the people in Maine decided that they wanted to get rid of that island, of that community, because it was so, it was an eyesore, they claimed, mm-hmm. and so they, um, they went across, and um, they threatened them, obviously, first, and a lot of those people left very quickly, then they went, and they took a, one of the houses with the family inside, and dragged it down to a raft, and set the raft Um, into the river, floated out into the ocean. Um, And those families, that family survived. Um, They were were rescued. Mm
0: -hmm. And then the rest
1: after that um, just disappeared. They just, um, most of them are lost to history. Not all of them, most of them are lost to history. And it's just struck me as, I mean, that's the American story, right? I mean, every state has some story like that where a powerful community destroys um, a, a different community. Um, mostly people of color, who are in the way, and who are not um, doing whatever, not performing the way they want, and so this is, this is one more story of that. And it felt to me like a, such a very American story that it could be told. And the the hard thing with that, oh, that book took me forever um, because I wrote it first as nonfiction, and it was it was boring. It just didn't work. And if that story is boring, you know, you know that you're doing it wrong. And then I wrote it from the point of view of a young African American girl on the island, and I chose one um, from a photograph. Oh. That didn't work because there are issues. Um, obviously, there are issues of a white male writing that point of view.
0: Sure.
1: It didn't really work well. And then finally, I figured, okay, here's how about a kiddo Turner? His name is, um, who is uh, from off island, who has come to this community, who really doesn't get what's going on. And who sees these things happening and how is he going to respond to those? And you know, in middle school, we I think we still have that. That, justice. that we, when we see injustice, injustice, we can, we just it almost you know boils inside of us, and it's something we tend to lose as we kind of get used to it, um, which is sad. But here's a kid who sees this, who discerns what's going on, and then um, dissolves try and do something about it so yeah that was um yeah that's how that book all got started and at the end of the book um in real life what i wanted to do was to stay really really right to the historical record and in what i what was told at that time all well, the research shows is that the people who were left on the island were brought down to a um a, what was called a home for the feeble-minded and there they lived for until they died in the 30s Every single record told that, and only within the last four or five years—no kidding—since the book has been out, um, has it really been discovered that? Um, oh, I'm sorry. And also in the original story, that old story, most of them were was said to have died within two weeks. It only came out recently that those people did not die, but were held for over 20 years. The women forcibly sterilized
0: oh and kept in the
1: home for the feeble-minded um, for until like the late 30s. That was all hidden. Um, there was no nothing about that in the record. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was um, it was a, an amaz- amazing story to work with. And um, it was fun to have great characters that I finally was able to come up with. But behind it all, of course, is the sense of a community that's destroyed. There was a few years ago, um, the Maine Historical Museum, a wonderful, wonderful exhibit. Just, I mean, amazing exhibit about the island and the NAACP had been doing some archeological research or had funded that research. And so there was this great stuff that they brought over that they had found on the island from this community. And at the end of it, um, two things happened. One was um, that the Tripp family, descendants of the Tripp family came to that while I was there. I mean, we were all, believe it. And the other thing is that they gave me a piece of pottery from um, one of the sites that they had dug out and it's like one of the most valuable things i own in my mind anyway. It's a small shard of pottery from some family that lived there that had to get away as quickly as they could.
0: Wow. Wow. That concludes part two of our three-part interview with author Gary Schmidt kind of ended abruptly there. You can't tell. I'm a real fan in that Uh, last book I read uh, called Lizzie Bright is uh, really extraordinary as all of his books are. So I certainly uh, encourage you to, to read them and to join us next week. God bless you.